You're listening to There Ought to Be a Law, the Center for Auto Safety podcast with Executive Director Michael Brooks, Chief Engineer Fred Perkins, and hosted by me, Anthony Simino. For over 50 years, the Center for Auto Safety has worked to make cars safer. Well, good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, world. Good morning, everybody. Good evening. Good afternoon. Uh, good traffic driving time. Speaking of traffic, and this is going to be related to a topic we're talking about. So I did a lot of driving the last few days, and uh, I kept having people who wanted to hang out in my blind spot. Three-way highway. I'm in the middle lane. I want to get over to the right. And somebody in the right, they either want to speed past me and race me that way. I don't understand why. I mean, there's plenty of room to go on the other side. But I had two separate drivers who'd hang out in my blind spot. And I'm like, what are you doing? So I'd try to speed up to get in from them. And they'd speed up with me. Then eventually I would just take my foot off the accelerator, drift down to God knows what, and they'd get past. Both of them staring at their phones, texting. Not driving a Tesla. Well, you know, maybe they're just fans, Anthony. Or, you know, I I, I think the speed up tactic is probably not the way to go. Just hit, Just coast down. Stay on your brakes and get behind people, especially if they're on their phones. And that, well, I didn't know they're on their phones until I uh, until I, I took my foot off the gas and just let them coast past. Yeah, well, they zoomed past that. And there's a message for the state of Connecticut and residents there. The speed limit is not a suggestion. Okay, the speed limit in that state is 55 miles per hour. Everyone is doing a minimum of 80. What is wrong with you people? I want to live. Hey, anyway. freedom. Freedom. Uh, yeah. I don't think that's just Connecticut. Well, Connecticut, home of most insurance companies. But hey, let, let's look. Let's. That's not what this podcast is about. It's not about my personal life. This podcast is about cruise <laughs> uh, and the silly things they do. So cruise, uh, you know, as frequent listeners to the show will know, uh, I'm a big fan. Uh, they updated their robo taxi software to stop them from crashing into emergency vehicles. I think that's great. Uh, from an article, well, well, in Lincoln, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Yeah. We saw an advertisement a couple of weeks ago that said it never sleeps, it's never drunk, it's never loses attention, it's it's all good, and the world is perfectly fine. Uh, how can they possibly improve it if it's already perfect? That is an excellent question. But uh, so they tout the things they've improved and updated. So hey, our software update will now recognize fire hoses. And to me, that's like telling somebody, hey, I just changed my diaper. Uh, my uh, diet and i shit my pants last <laughs> like why 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 are you bragging about hey we're really bad at something dangerously bad uh but now we we think we might have a fix for it well i i thought this whole thing was a laughable admission that things haven't gone well you know if you if you read it carefully in the first prior paragraph it says quote the data demonstrate that autonomous vehicles have the potential, close quote. <laughs> so basically what they're admitting is there's no data that says they're currently any good. And uh, there's an aspirational statement that in the future, everything will be better. Where, Where do you find data that? on potential? That's what I'm wondering. I know a lot of sports guys that would like that. Yeah, I think my bookie has data on potential. Um yeah, so so there's a news articles on this we're linking to, but also we're going to link to the cruise blog themselves, which has such morsels of things such as with over five million miles of driverless experience, our AVs have demonstrated their ability to enhance road safety versus status quo human driving. 
Uh, oh, well, I mean, you see the usual canard. I mean, it's in the second sentence. They're already reminding us of how many humans die every year because because of all you know our terrible driving, um, which is kind of what they base this their their entire vision on. And um, it's I don't know. After a while of seeing that touted over and over again, it makes you start wondering why they're always pointing to something else to begin their conversations. That's that is their that is their MO. It's kind of like, hey, we may have driven into a fire truck. Hey, we may have parked our vehicle on top of a woman's leg, but we have five million miles, which sounds impressive. And as frequent listeners to the show will know, it's less than a rounding error. Five million miles. We need a hundred million miles for real data. But they're like, hey, we're humans can't drive. Oh, by the way, we're so good we got better at recognizing things that humans recognize easily without even thinking. Well, and, and another point here, it's just something we've probably gone over in the past, but at the point where you make all of these changes to the vehicle software, do those 5 million miles you've driven to that point even really count anymore? That is an excellent point. I don't know, well, Fred, right. what do you think? That's a great point. And not only that, but has this the um, upgrades that you've made been compared to the operational data from the past as part of your validation process to make sure that, in fact, you are safer in any circumstance or in all circumstances that you know. They've got a really rich database. And, uh, you know, whenever I see a software upgrade or change that's been rolled out very quickly, I've got to believe that they haven't checked it very carefully. Well, you're a cynic. You don't understand. Look, if it's on a computer, it must be correct. Well, this is also just kind of hauntingly familiar, this type of approach. And Cruise does it a lot more effectively, I think, than um, Tesla. But it's a similar process of saying, oh, there was a problem. We fixed it. Trust us. And none of us have any way of verifying whether or not anything, either Cruise or Tesla or really anyone who's doing a software patch tells us. Um, so it's there's a bridge there, I think, that that needs to be created. There's a gap there, I should say, between the public understanding and public confidence and public trust about these issues and what we're being provided. And, you know, I think until that is, that bridge is created somehow by by companies that are pursuing these, these types of technologies, you're going to con continue to see consumers be skeptical about the process. Yeah, I think uh, GM Cruise is kind of like Lucy holding the football and we're Charlie Brown as the public. And hey, she's going to let us kick it this time. And we go for it. And they're like, nope. And then they blame somebody else. Uh, it's a strange, strange situation. Um, one of their other things they talked about in their blog posts, they start up one paragraph with, one paragraph with, although incidences are rare, but hey, as we've pointed out, what do they interfere with emergency vehicles? What is it? 145,000 times greater than humans do. What was the math yeah, on that? So yeah. remember like that. Yeah. Uh, this is how this is how annoying this is. Fred's just bored with this conversation already. He's like, it's just more GM Cruise bullshit. Like, like, yeah, they're yeah. He's taking a nap almost. I don't understand their management. I mean, how can they let this go on? They're just digging themselves into a deeper and deeper hole. Well, until the point at which all the cars save us from ourselves. Right. Maybe that's it. Yeah. That could be it. I mean, they're still down to what half their fleet size in San Francisco. Right. And San Francisco is still trying to get them off the roads entirely. 
And then there's a little known organization agency called NHTSA. Uh, and they came out with a report that suggests cruise vehicles are encroaching on pedestrians present in or entering roadways, roadways, it's a weird word, roadways, including pedestrian crosswalks in the proximity of the intended travel path of the vehicles. And the issue could increase the risk of a collision with a pedestrian, which may result in severe injury or death. Basically, uh, cruise doesn't care about people. If you're not in the car and we're going to hit you, come on, move along. We're on oh. the clock. This is NHTSA opening an investigation. You know, I, I, I would have to guess based on timing that is somewhat triggered by the incident we talked about a few weeks back with a, where the pedestrian was struck by a non-cruise vehicle, Nissan, tossed in the path of the cruise vehicle um, and was trapped under the cruise vehicle. Um, there were, I believe, two or three other cases that were cited by NHTSA to came up in SGO reports that were summarily deleted from NHTSA's site. We haven't been able to locate them again, but it was the, the, I believe both of those were from San Francisco. So it's, you know, it's NHTSA investigating another autonomous system that, you know, what I, in this situation, in a lot of the Tesla investigations you know tesla has come back and said oh we fixed that with a software update and it's has kind of said well okay um i wonder if in this case they're going to you know verify if they're going to establish you know new parameters for the operation of cruise they do have the authority to do that sort of thing um you know it's interesting to see what's going to happen with this but you know it's it's the second investigation that's been opened by the agency into cruise and the first i believe was resolved with a software update of some sort um so you know we're talking about 300 vehicles so it's a very small population compared to what they're used to dealing with there but it's a very important population because you know autonomous vehicles where we think that the focus of the agency administer i mean in, from an enforcement perspective is going to be for the next few years as these things are deployed and so seeing them respond quickly to things like this is important so you know i'm i'm glad they've opened the investigation but you know as usual the proof is in the pudding so we'll see what happens here so soon enough we're going to see a, a blog post from crew saying we've updated our software and we can now recognize most humans and try not to hit them uh, lastly, on one of their updates, they said, Hey, we've made it easier for emergency responders to get in there and move our vehicles when they cause problems at a scene. Uh, one, why are you making these guys and gals work harder in an emergency? Uh, human driver or safety driver, they can move the damn thing. But two, how do they move a cruise origin that's got no wheels, got, got no steering wheel, it's got no accelerator pedals, got no brake pedals? They're just going to, hey, let's let the fire go. Let's get the biggest people here and we'll just pick this thing up and move it. Like, it's, they, they didn't give a lot of detail on that. I don't know what their thoughts are. Maybe it's a leash. Ooh, maybe it's a leash. Hey, Kyle, come on, tell us how you feel about leashes. Well, it could be, but easier is not easy, right? There's a long way between easier and actually getting the job done. Well, let's you know continuing along this thread of of cars and software and hey we just released an update that made it better kia i mean you know we've talked about kia hyundai quite a bit and you know how easy it is to borrow one temporarily and leave it parked outside my window for hours idling uh so they released a software patch for this 
And then uh, Kia's like, hey, uh, you know that software patch release? We need to patch that software <laughs> uh, patch. Uh, in uh, a link we have to autoevolution.com. Uh, Kia started sending out letters to a bunch of its customers to inform them that an updated anti-theft software upgrade is now available at no cost. So kind. The reason is as simple as possible. The original patch needs a patch, as the updates did not resolve the glitch as expected. That's like, uh, the dog didn't quite eat my homework. Um, ha. <laughs> I, I, it's, you know, I think they, Kia might be using the same PR company as GM Cruise. I'm not really sure, but. You know, this, this just, this whole situation has been disappointing. I mean, we've known that there were some issues with the software patch. We've speculated that it was rushed out in response to the insurance industries, uh, you know, well, coming out a number of insurance industry players and saying they weren't going to cover these vehicles anymore. Something wasn't done earlier this year. And the software patch came out and we've, con we've fielded complaints from consumers who said, well, I've got the software patch and it's not, you know, my car's stolen. Um, <laughs> and also consumers who had um, uh, vehicles that couldn't be patched. So we were anticipating an update at some point, but, you know, this suggests that, you know, as we suspected, there were some issues with the original patch and now everyone has to basically do it again. Um, at least in these certain models of vehicles. We're not sure how many vehicles this applies to. We don't know which years and models it applies to because it's not a recall and there is no public information out on which vehicles are going to have to go back in for an update. So um, at this point, uh, as of October 12th, I believe, we we saw a letter that was a, a petition to NHTSA yesterday that has documented I believe around 42 deaths and over 100 crashes, over 100 injuries, um, 44 deaths, 132 crashes, and 126 injuries directly related to Hyundai and Kia thefts. So that's a number that's big. It's continuing to grow. This really isn't stopping. It's apparently going wild on Instagram now in addition to TikTok. The hack <laughs> allows for these vehicles to be stolen and... NHTSA is still sitting there saying apparently that they don't have any authority to to do a recall here or to jump in and make sure that the software updates are done right or that they reach all the owners that they need to reach. Um, so we're all ultimately in a very similar situation here as we are with GM Cruise. You're you're being you know Hyundai and Kia are saying trust us, this one's going to be right, this one's going to fix things, and then you know. We may see it roll out, you know, the last six months, I think it rolled out to about 20% of their fleet since it came out, which is just not good enough to stop these thefts in the first place. So there needs to be a new coordinated effort between the DOT, Hyundai, and Kia to get a good software patch out there, fix this problem once and for all. And, you know, from NHTSA's perspective, develop regulations going forward to address this situation and the, you know, the tension that's here between cybersecurity and vehicle theft. You know, if you can't protect vehicles from this type of thing, what, you know, how are we going to protect the vehicles in the future from more advanced thefts and attacks? I'm going to put out something uh, a little controversial. I know, I know, <laughs> getting a little nervous here. Michael's like, oh no, what is he going to say this time? Software is hard. Software is hard to do. And we look at it, Kia. They're a big company, 
bad software that came out there. GM Cruise, they're ostensibly, ostensibly an auto manufacturer. They're upgrading their software. Tesla, same thing. You look at Apple and Microsoft, who are software companies. Uh, we've all gotten an OS update, which in a day or two later, they're like, oh, no, bad one. Don't install that. Here's the correct one. So if you have very large companies that are focused on strictly software, they can't get it right. Why would we think that some autonomous vehicle company run by somebody named Kyle would get any of this right? You know, if my if my computer at home dies, that's really a bad inconvenience. If the software in my robo taxi has a glitch, people can die. And without any regulations, this is just going to happen more and more because software is hard. And unlike Fred's what he says and he believes everything will not be all right in the future. No, I'm just kidding. Of course it will. Hey, there's another problem. Uh, we talked about this before. <clears throat> Excuse me. But every simulation is doomed to succeed. And by that, I mean that when you're an engineer doing a simulation, you keep banging on your computer until you get the simulation to work and satisfy whatever objective it is. The problem is simulations are not the real world. Simulations are digital. The real world is analog. Whenever you make a digital simulation of the real world, you are creating an abstraction, which does not have anything like the same degrees of freedom as the real world. So that's a fundamental problem associated with the software that's being developed for these automated systems, and in fact, any automated driving system. It's really, really hard to do because it takes literally billions of miles on the road to establish adequate driving experience to really say that these things work the way they're supposed to work. Starting with a simulation is a good way to start, but the simulations should be used to identify critical situations that can be used to validate the software and then test the hell out of it to make sure that the vehicle is actually doing what you're expected to do in that situation. That doesn't appear to be what's happening. It appears to be a really slapdash procedure where they're just throwing the software out and, as Anthony said, creating patches over patches and moving that along as quickly as possible due to the pressure of their economic realities. They've got to start showing some revenue for these things. It's a tough situation, and it's different than when you're sitting at your desk wondering if um, Microsoft Word is going to correct that comma that's in your statement. You know that uh, you're wondering how to to format, how to how to work out how to format your document. It's different when it's driving a car. Well, I so you're under the impression that perhaps GM spending two billion dollars a year uh, on GM Cruise might might cause them to rush things a little bit. Is that what I'm getting at? Yes, and that's not nearly enough. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You know. They've got to start working on real cars and real situations and real critical mm-hmm. traffic situations that they can replicate on the proving ground. They invested in the proving ground. They should use it. They shouldn't use San Francisco as a proving ground for unqualified and unverified software. Sorry, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a proud Luddite, but that's, you know, that's just the way things should be. Now, I'm very happy that you clarifi- clarified that the proving ground should not be a city with actual humans in it. Agree 100%, because unfortunately, that's what Cruz and Waymo have managed to get away with. Uh, 
But, you know, it's because there's weak laws and continuing with maybe laws could do something good in the world. What do you think? Do you think if we had proper legislation that might reduce crime, might make things better? Well, the state of Hawaii has shown that it does because Hawaii passed a law um, in 2022 classifying a theft of a catalytic converter. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong. That's when you can buy like a, a GM Chevette and you get the catalytic converter and now it's a Cadillac, right? Is that that's what a catalytic right. converter is? Okay, good. Uh, that's why they're so valuable. Yeah, okay, good. I mean, yeah. So uh, the theft of a catalytic converter is a Class C felony. And another law that came in at the start of 2023 that clamped down on the sale of the parts and their components. Under the new law, people in Hawaii looking to sell catalytic converters must now show photo ID, uh, your Costco card might work, sign a form saying the converter wasn't stolen and meet a few other essential requirements, um, which is great. And so it turns out this has dramatically reduced the theft of catalytic converters in the state of Hawaii. I have another theory is, you know, there's only a limited number of cars in the state of Hawaii because you can't drive out of state and they've stolen all of them already. <laughs> <laughs> they've, they've all been stolen. Well, I mean, I think the data showed that, you know, what they're doing there is working. And I, I, the article was pointing to the fact that most of the states, the, the lower, the, the eastern 48, uh, don't have these laws. They don't have laws that, that restrict the sale unless you have um, ID or something to prove, you know, essentially who you are. And, it, and, that, and that type of restriction basically eliminates the chance that we're going to see, you know, the type of massive crime rings that have sprung up around this business. Um, I think it was in Philadelphia. There was, there was a crime ring in the North Northeast that was busted about uh, six, seven months ago, I think. And they have, you know, seen their, rates of catalytic converter theft dropped dramatically almost by half since that uh, unit was eliminated. So there's, you know, it, between uh, the enforcement, you know, making stronger laws around the theft of catalytic converters, but also um, restricting the sale and the transfer of them between parties who are probably a little shady. Um, that's one way to really address this. And this has been a consumer headache across america for years now now is why would you buy a used catalytic converter because i i i you know i kind of know what one is i kind of know what it does but it's kind of like the gallbladder of your car like yeah i got one it does something but like i don't, I don't even know. know that people are using them after they're stolen i think there's platinum or other uh rare materials in them that can be sold as well so there's multiple things that can happen after one storm. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's it is uh does have a significant amount of platinum in it and so that can be taken out and just sold as uh, you know, as a pure metal. But they're also sold in the aftermarket for people who've had their guess what? A catalytic converter stolen. <laughs> Okay, so there's a whole bunch of this is I'm sorry, I shouldn't be laughing if this has happened to you. But okay, so you get your catalytic converter stolen. That sucks. And then the, then you're going to buy one, but you're basically just buying back your old catalytic converter. Could be, but awful. you know, a new a new one costs a thousand bucks and a stolen one costs you a couple hundred bucks. So what are you gonna do? Well, but the stolen one's missing all the platinum. Maybe. Well yeah. and 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 you may not care because 
once your catalytic converter is stolen, remember it's part of the exhaust system. So you start the car and all of a sudden, you know, it sounds like a Mack truck. It's just got this because you got a hole in your exhaust system. So it would be a big improvement, particularly in those states that do not have any um, emissions, chill pipe emission testing to just get the uh, appropriately sized piece of pipe in there, whether or not it's actively working the way it's supposed to, just to keep the noise down. So a lot of possibilities to sell those, resell those stolen catalytic converters, I think. So are any other states saying, hey, you know what? Hawaii is a fun place to visit, and I kind of like this idea. Let's take their law. Copy, paste. I think that's one of the points the article made was that states have been slow to pick up on that type of legislation. Not sure why. I mean, it makes sense. I guess it's, you know, something that independent parts folks, you know, it's one another layer of bureaucracy, I guess they think they have to wait through. So maybe they're opposed to that type of thing. But, you know, I, I don't when there's a giant theft crisis going on with catalytic converters, I don't see any reason why states shouldn't step in in those specific areas to you know, virtually eliminate theft in the way that Hawaii has shown it can do. Yeah, a few years ago, there was an airbag theft ring, right? And that, yep. that seems to have calmed down. How do how did people counter that, Michael? Well, they had they had laws, and particularly a, a law was passed in New York to to counter that. And when you know New York or California getting cahoots on those types of things, it makes it such a huge dent in the market for it that a lot of people leave the business anyway. So. It doesn't take every state. Sometimes it only takes a few. I don't think Hawaii is going to have an outsized impact on what's what's happening on shore here in the United States. But, you know, this type of law could really be something that I think we should bring uh, bring over the the uh, bring over from Hawaii. That and more sunshine. Mm. Mm. Hey, if you want more sunshine. I mean, I do too, but instead, I really just want you to donate to the Center for Auto Safety. Go to autosafety.org and click that donate button. And if you don't do it, I'm just going to, it's going to be, the show is just going to be an hour long of me saying that over and over again uh, and saying, welcome to the pledge drive. Up next, we have a young boy who can juggle dolphin shells. It's unbelievable. Then followed by that, it's more of macrame with things in your pantry. Uh, I have no idea what that is. I was just kind of reenacting, uh, you know, as a kid, you're like, I want to watch Sesame Street. And then you're like, oh, my God, PBS is doing a pledge drive. Boo. Socialism's bad. Wait, what? <laughs> Sorry, I got off track there. Uh, so don't steal catalytic converters. Um, and a, uh, if you're a, a car rental company, don't allow people to rent cars that have recalls on them. Because yeah, uh, that that that's yeah. obvious. And that's Zipcar. Nitsa uh, entered a consent agreement with them and gave them a civil penalty this week. Now, the civil penalty was, you know, for a company with revenue of over $100 million a year was $300,000 with half of it deferrable. So I'm not sure if it's enough to really teach them a lesson. Um, and this was an investigation that Nitsa had open for, you know, it's five years now. So. I'm not sure why it took quite that long to get done. Um, but in any event, it's the first time that NHTSA has enforced uh, this provision that was passed a number of years ago um, to prevent the sale of recalled vehicles. And it's uh, rent the rental of recalled vehicles. 
And there's also a NHTSA investigation ongoing, I believe, into another rental car company for a similar practice. And it's something we receive complaints on occasionally. You know, a consumer will get a vehicle and look it up on the on the NHTSA recall finder and find out that it has an open recall, which is a big no-no. We'd encourage everyone and all of our listeners to do that when you pick up a rental car. Uh, is to scan the VIN real quick and see if there are any recalls on it and let us know if so. And we can report them to NHTSA and get more fines, hopefully a lot larger, just like this. Yeah, because in this case, uh, it was one of the uh, NHTSA's employees said they'd rented a van from Zipcar, only discovered the vehicle had an open recall. Um, yeah, so I think besides Michael and, you know, employees at NHTSA, I mean, yeah, it would be great if everyone scanned the VIN car because, you know, a couple extra more minutes hanging out in a car rental agency is what everyone wants to do. While you sit there and go, wait, do I need liability? Do I need collision? Wait, don't I already have that? I don't know. I'm putting this on a credit card. Let's just see what happens. I mean, what, I wonder what kind of negotiating ability that would give you if you discovered that your car was under recall when you were picking it up from the rental office. But why would they even ha- have that? Because, I mean, recall repairs are free. I mean, it's just because, like, oh, we don't have it's enough transit a, vans. I, you know, when I've I've heard complaints from the rental car industry that suggest, you know, they get these huge busy times and their cars are rented back to back to back. They don't have time to get them in for the recall fix. Uh, that's generally there's some type of. I think the last time I heard that was during COVID when they had reduced their fleet significantly and there was a huge demand for the rental cars that were still available. Um, So that's one excuse. But the fact is a lot of recalls now could be fixed by a software. Some of these companies are getting the software fixed from the manufacturers and able to deploy it to their fleet so they can fix recalls faster than consumers can even get the software recall from their dealer. Um, on the mechanical recalls, yes, that's going to cause some downtime in your rental fleet. You know, that's something you probably could have calculated on the front end because every fleet's going to be have vehicles that are out of service for some period of time for safety recalls and maintenance. So there's really no excuse there. I think generally, you know, they were just allowing vehicles, you know, under recall that have a small chance, but still a significant chance of being defective and hurting someone or killing someone. They just didn't find that it was, you know, it made sense for them and it from a business perspective to keep a tight lid on that. Um, and after the law was passed, I, I'm hoping that they, you know, besides it now being illegal, that they are understanding that they need to patrol their the VINs and their fleet, you know, to make sure that there aren't recalls being sent out on the road. Yeah, that should be an easy fix because they have all that information you know, stored in a database somewhere can easily have that Yeah, it's easy to check. And fleets, actually, rental fleets can access uh, some of the Carfax and NHTSA tools around recalls and bulk check their VINs and their system daily, hourly, however quickly they'd like to. So it's it's not an overwhelming burden on them to figure out whether or not a vehicle is recalled. Um, really, it's just a matter of getting it to a facility for a repair that that compromises most of the the time that a vehicle wouldn't be available to rent. Hmm. Hey, uh, you know what we rarely talk about on the show that I want to spend some time talking about? Um, it's been a long time. Autonomous vehicles. <laughs> yeah, I can't get enough of it. I'm getting back to it. Okay, uh, JD Power and MIT. Um, I've heard of one of those. Uh, one of them gives out little awards. 
they put out a white paper saying that people are turning against autonomous vehicles that that basically the public is like ah they're they've had two years in a row of declining their impression of them uh and some of it is the quote-unquote negative news cycle but uh, they kind of glance over the fact that the negative news cycles caused by them parking their cars on a woman's leg and driving into fire trucks and uh you know things of that nature but it's uh it's fascinating because i imagined i think before we started this show i would have imagined that you know one i'd never have touched steering wheel again by now uh two everyone would love an autonomous vehicle uh and three i would be taller but none of those things have come true no but anthony it's it is not a coincidence that confidence in AVs has been declining ever since we started this podcast. <laughs> uh, I, uh, sorry, I was thinking of something else. <laughs> so, but, I mean, was this surprising to the two? I, or why even, even follow that question up with you two? Um, I, I don't know. I mean, the, 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 the most interesting thing about this to me were that it, I think it was around 55%, 54% of the responders thought that autonomous, fully automated self-driving vehicles are either ready for purchase or lease now or will be in the next um, three to four years, which right. I think is insane. And it, I think it really points to the fact that most people don't understand what fully automated self-driving vehicles means. Um, a lot of that, those percentages seem to suggest folks who uh, either think that Teslas are fully self-driving or that the Cruise and Waymo experiments that are ongoing are somehow fully automated um, and are going to be ready to buy, um, which is wild. But um, yes, I think that, you know, a lot of the negatives of autonomous vehicles have come to the fore over the last couple of years that the survey covers particularly in san francisco and and now moving to other places so it's probably to be expected there you know the, there there's a gap in public understanding i think that's pretty clear as to what these vehicles are and you know what these the companies that are behind some of the testing that's going on haven't really shown those same people how this stuff is going to work and how it's going to be safe and that type of thing so we're all still kind of waiting for some really good evidence that what their product is is going to actually save all these lives that they claim uh, are going to happen someday in the future and right now we just don't have that yet and i'm you know it's i think it's beyond time that you know, instead of repeating their same mantras over and over again about, you know, how their AI is one day going to save us from ourselves, if they could actually show us some basic data that that proves this is, is something that's going to happen rather than it's just, you know, potential. Could it be uh, this distrust of autonomous vehicles? Could it be because there's a lack of autonomous vehicle standards? And with that, it's welcome to the Tau of Fred. Or as our transcription software likes to call it, the towel of Fred. You've now entered the Tao of Fred. Well, thank you. I've, um, I'm waiting, waiting a little bit for the round no, of applause, but I, I don't. We're, we're good. Okay, good to go. So, uh, Michael, I have a question for you. What is the SAE standard defining auto, uh, autonomous vehicle automation levels? That is uh, SAE J. 
No, there is no standard. Did you say standard? I did. Uh, Why does he no, get all the good questions? The, the one that the 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 report that that talks about the levels is J thirty sixteen, but I don't believe that rises to level of a standard or even really close. Anthony or uh, Michael, you rose to that. I I was offering you a trick question, and you saw right through it. <laughs> the legal mind at work. Uh, that's correct. That's that. Even though it is used as a standard by a lot of people, it is not a standard. It's a report. So it's uh. And in the business, what it's what people use to describe it is they say it is not normative. If you have a normative standard, that means that you have to comply. And I, um, let's back up for and, a second, real quick. Just remind listeners what is SAE and why do I care? SAE is this is the standard um, acronym used to describe SAE International, which is a standards creating organization in the automation uh, and mobility business. Now, they used to be called um, Society of Automotive Engineers, but they've gone uptown, so they've upgraded to SAE International now. Okay, and so auto manufacturers, ideally, they these bunch of folks get together and say, hey, here's some standards, we're going to comply to this and make cars safer, better, more advanced. Well, not just cars. Have you ever bought a uh, garden hose, Anthony? I know you live in the city. Hey, wait, wait, this mask. is a private quote. Well, I'm going to switch we'll... over to Michael. You're a city <laughs> Michael, have you ever bought a garden hose? I, I have. In fact, I've bought one recently. And have you ever connected it to a faucet? Yes. Yes. Did that's... it work? <laughs> did it, it get did, a good connection? It, it well, worked. the reason that worked is because there's a thing called an SAE thread standard. And the hose and the faucet were both manufactured in conformance to the normative SAE thread standard. And you can find if, whenever you buy a bolt, like a, we'll say a number 10, 24 bolt, that is also built to SAE thread standards. And if you go to another company and you buy an SAE 1024 nut, it's going to fit because they both conform to the standard. So standards are important. Got it. Reports are a lot less important because they're not normative. You can make of them whatever you want to make of them. Um, so in this case, in the very important case, there's a lot of wiggle room in this. So I'm gonna I got another question for you, Anthony. Oh pick up a small object and it has a label on the outside that says chocolate bar with almonds. Oh. And you okay. open it, what do you expect to find inside of it? happiness for like 30 seconds and then well, i was thinking in a, like i was thinking in a more uh, chemical sense oh oh a chocolate bar with almonds wait do i need exactly to right yeah <laughs> you win on that one okay so there's a, a there's a almonds? critical parameter in the report michael correctly identified which is often mistaken as a standard called the minimal risk condition so minimal risk condition is a basically thought of as a safe harbor for the vehicle to maneuver to whenever there's any problem in the uh, self-driving system. So, you know, something craps out, the computer craps out, the, the vehicle transitions into a minimal risk condition. That's what's written in. And right now, the crews and Waymos, their middle risk condition is they just stop in the middle of the street. Apparently, yeah. Okay, just check. So, or, or run over a fire hose or do something. Right. But uh, the, the reason, so it sounds trivial, but it's really important because 
the term minimal risk condition is being written into legislation in a lot of states and uh, often without attribution even to the SAEJ 3016. Just people expect it to be exactly what it says, right? So what does minimal mean? It means the minimum. And what does risk mean? Well, Anthony, what do you think risk means? I use a board game by Parker Brothers, which I never played because I didn't. No one would play it with me. Michael, but, what do you think risk means? Um, risk is the chance of something bad happening. Ah, uh, close. So risk is actually a two-parameter in the business. Risk is actually a two-parameter um, data, I guess you would call it. And on the vertical axis, typically you have the probability of occurrence. And on the horizontal axis, you have Time. the consequence. So you've got both risk and consequence in it. Okay, so if you're in the upper right-hand corner of that, you got a real problem because you have a high risk, uh, or you've got a, a very probable occurrence with a lot of consequence. If you're in the lower left, low risk, low probability of happening. So right, low probability, low consequence, you're in a good shape. Unfortunately, the minimal risk condition never defines the word risk. So mm. risk means whatever you want it to mean when you're when you're developing the car. Um, minimal means minimal, right? It means the lowest. Unfortunately, if you go to the definition, the minimal risk condition uh, only refers to reducing the risk of a crash. Okay, so think of a a convertible car that's going over a cliff, a la Thelma and Louise, with the doors open. If you close the doors before you go over the cliff, you have technically satisfied the requirement to be in a minimal risk condition. It doesn't address the underlying fact that you're hurtling over a cliff, but, you know, you've, you've achieved MRC. And people, Wait, no way. That's not, that's how, how this is, that's insane. Well, it's also my wife's so, favorite movie. It's based on once you're off the cliff into the air, right? Yeah, so well, the, you've reduced the, the risk as you, yeah, you've reduced point, the risk you as you go over the cliff. The right. Oh my, what right. if I took my seatbelt off, I'd increase the risk. I ideally you would your minimal risk condition calculation would have been made, you know, 20 seconds earlier when you were still on the road. Yeah, ideally, but you know, okay. I'm just saying it means whatever you want it to mean because it, it only it only says you're going to reduce the risk, okay? And so, again, you've got the problem of risk versus hazard. So when you're trying to reduce the risk, does that mean that you're making it less likely to occur, or does that mean you're reducing the consequence? If you had said hazard, it would be a lot clearer as to what you're talking about here. Then there's the problem with the term condition. Okay, what a, what's an example of a condition? Well, a condition would be like it's 20 degrees outside. That's cold, right? Or a condition would be something is wet or something is hot, that's a condition. A condition is not a procedure. And when you look at the definition of minimal risk condition, it says uh, a condition to which a user or an ADS may bring a vehicle. So you have to make a decision, right, as part of that. Are you gonna do it or you're not gonna do it? The, the, the definition here allows you to optionally do it, also optionally not do it. So you can do nothing and it can still be in conformance with this definition of minimal risk condition. Okay. So that's a procedure. It's not a condition. So the problem with the, the definition of minimal risk condition is that 
A, it's not minimal. B, there's no definition of risk. And what they're really talking about is the hazard. And C, they're talking about a condition versus a procedure. And a procedure is not a condition. So why should anybody care? Oh, and also it's voluntary versus normative, as Michael established earlier on. It's not a standard. It's not a normative standard. So basically, as far as a consumer is concerned, this gives you the illusion of safety because you said, well, I'm headed towards a minimal risk condition. They've even made up terms like a minimal risk maneuver. I'm using a minimal risk maneuver to get to the minimal risk condition. Well, that's great. But what does it actually mean? Well, you're going to find out when you're in a courtroom somewhere. <laughs> and, and when you're suing a company and the defendant's lawyer says, well, Your Honor, we conform to the minimal risk condition. And it says right here that it may bring a vehicle. Yeah, we didn't do it, but, it's, but the standard says it may bring a vehicle. And the standard says we're going to reduce the risk. Is So is the jury going to be astute enough to say, well, it's not a standard. It's a report. Uh, and, you know, it's a it's it really indemnifies the company by the ambiguity that's built into this particular term to say basically whatever you want it to say. Um, so I won't belabor that. But, you know, if you drive to your Piggly Wiggly and you do a lot of things to get there, that is a procedure, right? That's not a condition. And that this, the same thing holds. If you were to say, I'm going to park the car, make it stationary in the parking lot of a Piggly Wiggly, well, that's a condition, being stationary in a Piggly Wiggly parking lot. So this distinction is very important, and I think it's completely lost on the people who are using this minimal risk condition, including SAE, including the International Standards Organization, including state governments throughout the country. Uh, and by using this term, they're really opening up the public to a lot of jeopardy. Oh, well, also another good board game by Parker Brothers. Right. So... <laughs> That's okay. all I've really got to say in that. Is there anything about that that uh, you'd like to discuss further? Yes. So you're part of SAE, correct? Yes. Okay. And obviously, I, I don't imagine you're the only person inside of this organization. And there's there's at least seven people in this group, right? There are more than one person in this organization. <laughs> okay. Yes. Okay. No, there's there's thousands of people, right? Is that about right? At least a thousand? I would, yes, definitely. Okay. So there's other people who realize, hey, this minimal risk condition, this is, this is nonsense. What well, do we oddly do enough, about it? Oddly enough, until we started this campaign, I don't think there was. Is it just, you know, people, their eyes glazed over kind of, yeah, this sounds it. And they did exactly what you just explained to us. Is you just put in your head what it means and then realize, wait a second, we actually have to define what it means. Because my well, version the, is closing the doors. and Right. Once the scales fall from their eyes, then they, they start to come around. Surprisingly, not everybody does come around just because I'm stating a, a position. But sure. those scales are really firmly attached to a lot of people's eyes. And procedurally, a lot of these, a lot of the work that gets done in developing these standards, particularly the international standards, are really driven hard by the need to conform to their production schedule. Right. right. So if things have got to come out by, you know, June of a certain year, then there's a lot of steps that have to take place years before that 
to conform to that June standard. And one of the things that people are really loathe to do is to go back to the fundaments and the fundamental assumptions associated with the standards and say, well, this falls apart. So, you know, if, well, we've, and it's natural for people to say, well, this is the way we've always done it. What's wrong with that? Let's just move along. Right. But I uh, imagine the situation we're in where we're just talking about how consumer confidence in autonomous vehicles is keeps declining. If somebody said, hey, we have this and this is what we mean by it. And it's not a hard definition. It's like, hey, things failed. We're pulling over to the side of the road something like that whereas instead gm cruise is just like nothing failed everything's perfect here's a new software update all right i mean that's part of the issue why people don't like these things and people hit them with hammers yeah um, well um that's all true and you know i i guess at a personal level i don't have any friends so i can go out and say <laughs> this i don't i don't piss anybody off uh, or if i do it doesn't really change the constellation of friends in my orbit anytime soon um but it's you know it's a fight and uh, we do have some friends in this we do have some allies but at the at the beginning of this um it didn't happen and procedurally we still haven't won the battle because even though uh you know there's a lot happening at different levels there are other levels of approval before any of these standards get published by an organization and uh you know there's a lot of politics that goes on sometimes you're able to make the case Sometimes you can't. Sometimes things go on uh, that you can control, and sometimes things go on that you cannot control, just like any other political organization. So, and, you know, summarizing, people need to be careful in order to build the trust in autonomous vehicles. I think it's fundamental to first have a set of standards, controls, and documentation that is both transparent and accurate and will adequately protect the public's interest in the personal safety. I don't think we're there yet, and, and I, I don't want to say that this is an intended re, uh, result of any particular organization's activities, but it certainly seems to be a result of that activity. And I think it's important to remove the ambiguity and, and straighten this out. So I want to point out to listeners, this is uh, this is how the sausage is made kind of thing. This is why we need your support. This is not incredibly sexy work. This is not, um, you know, incredibly fast work. It takes a long period of time, but autonomous vehicles are coming in some form or another. And a big thing the Center for Auto Safety is doing is what Fred's just talking about, is being ahead of the curve and getting these organizations and these companies to really, hey, define minimal risk condition. Basically translate to, hey, let's make sure we when this stuff goes out, uh, large scale that it's you know not going to run you over it's not going to cause any damage uh so hey if you're ever thinking why do i want to give this to you know to this organization it's because of that reason and because fred has said the phrase piggly wiggly three times and he's very happy about that i do love that but uh <laughs> yeah i mean you said earlier software is hard well politics is very hard and uh as a lunch bucket engineer. I'm not particularly well qualified to do that, so I can only rely on the logic. Um, it's up to people like Michael, who's really smart about this stuff, to to work the politics. And so, Michael, beat me up. What are we doing wrong here? I, I don't think we're doing anything wrong in this circumstance. I mean, there's, there's a, a, a lack of consensus standards on autonomous vehicles and on 
basically everything that you know the SAE is calling level zero to six. I mean, there's still a lot of issues in that level two to level three area. We've talked about you know, some of the vehicles that are really operating as level threes, which is very limited. It's just Mercedes and Nevada and California. And then there's a whole host of vehicles that are operating in what they want to call level two plus, but it's actually, there's a lot of level three similarities that they're, what they're really doing is trying to keep the liability on the consumer. They don't want the software being liable for any bad decisions that it makes at this point. So there's- All right, there's I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, interest. but important that you did bring that up because- People have to understand that when a company says it's level two or level two plus or level three, there is no governmental organization or even an industry organization that says, yeah, that's right. So whatever the company says is what it is. And there's no such thing as a level two plus definition within the SAE report that describes that. Um, as Michael said, level three, for example, says the sustained and is defined as Conditional driving automation, the sustained and ODD-specific performance by an ADS of the entire DDT, with the expectation that the DDT fallback-ready user is receptive to ADS-issued requests to intervene, as well as to <laughs> DDT performance-relevant system failures in other vehicle systems and will respond appropriately. Well, that sounds pretty good, but there's nothing in there about safety-critical <laughs> failures. Um, now, what duration qualifies as sustained? The report is silent on that. Um, it says use is receptive to ADS issued request to intervene. What the hell does that mean? What, what is the, the report never defines receptive? We, we don't know what it means. So, so, you know, when somebody says, well, we're level three in conformance with J3016, all that means is nothing. It's whatever they want it to mean. Hey, that's the line I used to pick up my wife. Okay. I said, look, hey, I'm level three compliant with J3016. 3016 and she's like oh god why did i make these choices in my life that worked huh? i thought she was a new yorker too <laughs> yeah. oh okay so listeners sae if you want to buy a nut and a bolt way to go autonomous vehicles they need a they're a way to go i'm repeating myself now hey how about how about we do some recalls because we're eating enough people's time today recalls they sound great we're good at recalls and so is Ford, because Ford does them quite a bit. Ford Explorers 2020 to 2022. Um, we're talking 238,000 vehicles. They are equipped with a real rear axle bushing part number, blah, blah, blah. And the following powertrains, blah, blah, blah. I, I blah, 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 because it's just, you know, too much. Um, and the, uh, the fractured rear axle bolt will allow the rear axle housing to move out of position resulting in severe noise and vibration. It sounds like it's going to be worse than just some rear noise and vibration, right? Doesn't something else bad happen? Oh, that's a separate recall. No, that's the same recall I'm talking about. This yeah. is the uh this is the fire one? No, this is not no, a fire. No, this is a separate one. Oh, this Ford. is uh, this is a rollaway. So essentially what's happening here is and I think if you Fred might need to help us translate this a little, but it's got a mounting bolt on the rear axle and, and how they describe it as um, powertrain torque through the drive line causes axle rotation of the pinion angled towards the subframe, which exerts a bending force on the rear axle bolt. Peak torque is normally experienced during a launch event. 
I think a launch event is when you floor it. Is <laughs> the the word that I've come to because that's also launch event is what's described as uh, what the GM Hummer and the Teslas do when they have those super fast modes. Apparently, that is a launcher's event. That's I mean, in a, my Lamborghini. A, a launch event. Yeah. And it's a, after numerous peak torque events are experienced, the bolt may suffer t- fatigue failure, and that's what makes the problem happen. Just basically, you put the car in park, and it's not even in park anymore because you've been flooring it too much. Is what, what the recall sounds like. So they're going to replace this with a part that allows you to floor it a little more. I like to call it gun it. Just gun it. Just hit that. Um, all right. Well, Ford's got another one. What is Ford recalling here? This is a uh, Ford recalling SUVs and trucks that could catch fire. Uh, certain model 2020 to 2022 Explorers do it a rollaway. No, that's the same thing. Wait, what? Yeah, listen to fire? you. Huh. I don't know this what that wrong. was. You can yeah, that's just, just a wrong graphic on. Uh, Ford did have a recall this morning on their. Um, the Mach E vehicles; those were, I think, they were recalled last year, or, or there was a service campaign on them to fix the battery. It was on these extended range electric Mach E vehicles, and um, they're having power failures. And um, NHTSA opened up a query into that, and it looks like just this morning Ford submitted a five seven three on that that recalls the Mach E's uh, with the extended range battery. What what is a five seven three? A five seven three is the safety recall report that uh, is filed with the DOT when a company decides to conduct a recall. Ah, got it. Okay. Um, next up, um, Tesla. You guys ever hear of that company? Hmm. Fifty, almost fifty five thousand vehicles. The twenty twenty one to twenty twenty three Model X. Uh, on certain ones, the vehicle controller detects the sensor voltage that indicates brake fluid level may not have a sufficient threshold range at low fluid levels. This may result in non-compliance with FMVSS 135 section 5.5.4. Um, yeah. So basically it says, Hey, our, our brake fluid level sensor is wrong. Yeah. And, and that's non-compliant with the motor vehicle safety standards and they have to fix it in this case. All you have to do is upload your latest full self-driving beta software release to get it. Right. That's what they're saying. Software release 2023.32.7 or later corrected the co- condition by correcting the vehicle controller set threshold range at low. Is anyone still listening? Um, and then the last one we got here is uh cruise again we've already touched on cruise and how nits is investigating them this is uh prompted by this is my favorite part of this odi investigation it says prompted by sgo and social media reports the office of defect investigation i need like a superhero soundtrack behind when i say that has received reports of incidents in which automated driving systems equipped vehicles operated by a cruise may not have exercised appropriate caution around pedestrians. So this is just a follow-up to what we talked about earlier, whereas uh, there's a fun video. I'll see if I can find a link to it where these people, they're walking across the, uh, the crosswalk. They're doing the right thing. They stop the crosswalk. They look both ways. It's a couple adults and some children, and they're walking through, and the cruise is just like, I bet I can get them. How much for the kids? Five bucks a kid? 
Uh, they just gave him dirty looks, but you're just giving dirty looks to a robot. And the robot didn't care. Robot kept going. And that's, uh, okay. <laughs> I guess that's not going to end the show because uh, two of them were just speechless there. there. Oh, yeah. I just wanted to go back to one thing you were talking about earlier when you told told our listeners that I was getting bored with this. So I'm not. <laughs> so, okay, the statistics from NHTSA are that there is approximately one vehicle failure that causes a, a death every 2 billion miles with a B, 2 billion miles, something like that. So knowing that injuries, the ratio of injuries to deaths is about 10, this means that there is roughly one in every 200 million miles driven uh, injury associated with the um, operation of the vehicle, okay, for a standard vehicle. So now we look at the experience in crews, which has had how many now, 77 something incidents um of an out of control vehicle and it wasn't out of control it just was you know it made a different choice well maybe <laughs> some choices are bad anthony <laughs> but uh you know out of control vehicles into five million miles driven and if you run the numbers on that it turns out that the hazard associated with these cruise vehicles is many thousands of times higher than a hazard associated with a conventional vehicle based upon NISA statistics and uh, NISA records. Wait, so I just wanted second. to clarify I, I, that point. Uh, Kyle Vaught from Cruise is on the line, and he says, no, 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 no. He says he he's a good boy and that his stuff is right. Humans are bad drivers. Well, what Kyle's trying to do is a hard thing, but it's too bad that he's doing such a bad job of it. Hey, with that, hey, listeners, thanks for tuning in this week. We'll be back next week, and maybe we'll get to uh, about a half a dozen stories we couldn't get to this week because we had so much fun, and, uh, you know, we had some medical, minimal risk condition. Uh, so, till next time, thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks, thanks for listening. For more information, visit www.autosafety.org.